0: Hello and welcome back to the DDI Podcast, hashtag DDI Discussions. On today's episode, we have PhD student Poppy Jared Abbott, who also leads on the DDI Women in Data series, speaking with economist and writer Alison Strager. But first, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at ddi.ac.uk and follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at DataCapitalEd. And please be sure to join us on the 30th of September for our annual data conference. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Hello listeners, my name is Poppy Gerard Abbott and I'm a PhD in the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh, researching sexual and gender-based violence in the higher education context. And I'm also the campaign lead for the Women in Data project at DDI, which aims to raise the profile of women in Scotland working in data and start conversations about gender equality issues in this field. Today, we are revisiting this campaign by doing a deep dive into the world of economics, risk, data, ethics, employment, equality, and systems change. And I'm joined by the fabulous Dr. Alison Schrager, a New York-based economist, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, and co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners, a risk advisory firm. Alison's impressive background spans finance, policy, media, consulting, And writing. And by talking to me today, she is circling back to her undergraduate roots at the University of Edinburgh, where I am based doing my PhD. So, welcome home, Alison. I'm just so excited to be recording this conversation with you today, Alison, because I too have a super diverse background and I'm a big fan of, I guess, interdisciplinary approaches, combining disciplines in our answers to the big questions of today. And this brings me to your fantastic book, An Economist Walks into a Brothel and Other unexpected places to understand risk published in 2019 available on kindle audiobook and hardback where one reviewer the new york times stated that allison has i quote a provocative approach and that the book is not just informative but entertaining as well and i'm entering this conversation having just put down the book so my first question to you today allison is why were you motivated to write a book on changing our relationship with risk why is consideration of risk a good thing
2: well um I guess it reflects my own oh first of all so thanks so much for having me I'm so excited whenever I get to speak to anyone from Edinburgh University but um I think it really reflects my intellectual journey I uh am an economist I did I studied economics at Edinburgh then I did a PhD in it always around the concepts of retirement and aging and saving And, you know, I was always a macroeconomist, which was studying these sort of big uh, trends and, you know, where, where, who should bear the um, responsibility of saving and investing and how much you should. But then after I finished grad school, I started working with financial economics. And I always thought financial economics was just like predicting the stock market. But it turns out it was something so much more profound. It was the study of risk, like how to put a price on risk. And when you do put a price on risk, who should bear it? And as I learned more about this and learned these tools through what effectively turned into a seven-year postdoc, I realized these tools are really important and obviously not very well understood and very rarely taught. And so I wrote this book to try to make them more accessible to more people because when you really understand them, you see them everywhere and you see how helpful they can be and how anyone who's successful at what they do, no matter what it is they do, uses these tools to some extent. So I had all this sort of very scientific formal training to make sense of them. And I figured I could combine these stories of people who use tools in a really uh, fun way and make them a lot more accessible so we could all benefit.
1: I think those are really the operative words, right? So uh, fun and accessible. That's what I love about the book, how it um, really drills into understanding risk from the perspective of everyday people. So my next question to you is, uh, how do we know when we have reduced risk from your from the perspective of your expertise what are the sort of KPIs or measurements for that
2: Um well um it's hard to ever really know I mean you can take steps to transform risk um either by hedging or insuring or diversifying those are the three main tools diversifying is just like in the if you're investing in the stock market it would be owning lots of stocks instead of one and generally, it's a principle of finance or in life that the more risk you take, the more potential for upside. So really no risk, no reward. But um, to some degree, finance diversification is what we call the free lunch, which is if you diversify right, you can get more and take less risk. So that's why owning, uh, say, a mutual fund, which is a lot of stocks, is better than owning one stock, because on average, you'll do better and take less risk. So, I mean, you can apply that to any principle in life. Like, you know, when you're young and you're dating, uh, you know, if you meet one person and then you completely put all your eggs in one basket and never really date anyone else, you know, maybe it will work. Maybe it'll be the love of your life. There's a high return on that. But then you also, if you date more people, you get a better sense of who you are, what you're looking for, how you wanna be treated. So that would be, or if that one relationship doesn't work out, you have others to fall back on and are less invested. So, I mean, that would be example of diversification. Um, the others are hedging, and that is just taking less risk, say, if you're investing in the stock market, dividing your investments between, say, stocks which are risky and bonds that are less risky, or, say, if you're driving to the airport, giving yourself more time to get there. That would be a, a hedge. And then, finally, there's diversification. Sorry, insurance. Insurance is just, say, often when we think of it, we think we go to an insurance company, and if we pay them and something bad happens, they take on the risk for us or pay us. If your house burns down, they pay you. And I mean, you could think of insurance as anything. Like if you're planning a wedding, say maybe having a rain venue, that, uh, that in case, you know, which in Scotland is certainly a, an important insurance you want to do. So that would be taking risk off the table for some cost. And that's different than hedging because hedging is you know, you give up some upside in exchange for reducing downside. With insurance, you keep the upside, but just pay someone a flat fee to take away your downside.
1: So zoning into the theme and the topic of sex work in the book okay why did you choose this context and did you finish the book with any particular views on on sex work did you have a, a different view um at the start of writing the book um and is it do you think it's a good thing to have a sex industry i'd just love to uh unpack that context a bit more
2: um well i mean i ended up doing a story on sex work um i was trying to write my book proposal on um Actually, it was on negotiation skills because the Bunny Ranch in Nevada has a fairly extensive negotiation training program because uh, all the transactions are individually negotiated. So I went there really to learn how to ask for more money, which is something I certainly suffer from, uh, not doing enough of. And that's when I got exposed to their whole price setting behavior, which I discovered was an interesting risk story. I mean, I'm a social scientist, so I don't, I don't tend to think in terms of good or bad. As an economist, I'm like markets exist. I don't put a judgment usually on whether or not they exist. If they exist, they exist for a reason. So my own personal feelings, I mean, I'll be honest, I spent quite a lot of time in brothels. I I find it a little icky, but that's me. People are going to go and do it no matter how I personally feel about it. I I did walk away feeling strongly that it should be legal only because it's going to happen no matter how I personally feel about it. And when it's legal, it can be regulated which offers more protections. Um, So I guess that would be the the main thing I I, I did feel about it. But good or bad, as I said, I I never really went there. I said, because as a social scientist, I don't really feel like it's my place. It's not something I personally would want to do or would, you know, want my partner doing. But I mean, that's just my choice. Um, A lot of other people feel differently. And no matter how I feel about them, I'm not going to stop them.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important in our social science approaches to research that, as you say, we don't attach those judgments. We're there to observe and to study power and social processes and networks. Absolutely. Um, So I would like to... Uh, pick up on the character Hoff. So for listeners, Hoff was the brothel owner in the book who, in a nutshell, charged high percentages of sex workers' earnings to provide housing and security right. And I think readers would agree he was uh, the character that left the most amount of questions. And he really got you thinking. Um, So he made profit out of women's risk, but also lowered the risks for them. It could be seen as a mutually beneficial business agreement. And he really tapped into an unmet need and a shrewd innovative gap in economics so i'm so intrigued to ask you allison now that you're sort of in front of me in inverted commas what did you think of the character hoff i'm kind of
2: obsessed with how my feelings about him because I personally i guess i like complicated people who i've complicated feelings about and i had very complicated feelings about dennis who has since died um and that, yeah, I mean, what I found interesting about him is when I normally think of a pimp who profits off of women selling their bodies for sex is usually they're putting women in incredibly risky situations and they take the money, which is as an economist, terrible. Like if, if you're giving, if you're someone's giving you their money, they should be because they're reducing your their risk, your risk, like an insurance company. And effectively, that's what Dennis was doing. He was reducing risk. He also was doing a lot of other important things. Like I said, I went there to learn negotiation skills. The brothel also offered incredible financial literacy training, probably the best financial literacy program I've ever observed. And I I love financial literacy. He also uh, asked every woman when she arrived on day one to set a life goal beyond the brothel what she was looking to achieve while she was there long term, whether go to school, um, buy a car, buy a house. And then he had to have her work with a financial planner to do that. He once said to me, you know, listen, a lot of these women come from communities where they're unbanked. They never had any financial literacy training. And a lot of them aren't going to stay here very long. And they're never going to make this kind of money again so it's important that they have a goal and he said selfishly when they do have a financial goal they do work harder and they're more focused but it also is important and you know you can feel really icky about what goes on and like wow it's really creepy that he gets 50 percent of their earnings on the other hand you know i met women we're making. I'm a woman. who Made a million dollars a year. I was talking to women who came from families where no one had a bank account, and they were telling me how they invested their retirement accounts. Um, it really, as I said, there's a, there's a lot of you know feelings you're going to have about this, and there's something unambiguously good go or sorry, not unambiguously ambiguously is some good things going on there, and some sort of things you can feel really uncomfortable about at the same time, and I think that is what intrigued me about him so much is I like people I have complicated feelings about. And you can't really meet Dennis you couldn't have met Dennis and really seen what gone on there and have a lot of complicated feelings about the whole thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that complexity is really captured in the writing, I guess why Hoff intrigued me was that he, he highlighted the question of how you measure economics and how you measure risk. And his character shows that, I guess, economics and equality goals aren't always in opposition to each other.
2: No, um, not at all. Uh, I mean, as an economist, I always, you know, believe that too, which is, you know, growth is generally good for everyone. And, um, I think what was interesting for me is, you know, we talk a lot about expanding growth to different parts of the economy, but we're not very good at it a lot of the time. And, you know, he he definitely took a lot of women who certainly have been cast aside in society, not given the benefits of good education, sort of always told. I mean, we certainly, to some degree, it's different in the UK as it is here, but we certainly have our own class issues of women who definitely were not encouraged either in school, by their communities, by their families, that they could make a lot of money, that they could be successful businesswomen. And he said they could. And that really changed some lives. And uh, I think it did show, I mean, this is not the model I would want for everyone, but it did show maybe it doesn't have to be this particular job, some things that can work.
1: Absolutely. And what I really loved about the book was that it didn't try or attempt to answer these totalizing questions, for example, you know, is the sex industry good or bad as a whole? Should we eradicate, should it be a gender equality goal to eradicate the sex industry? That was almost left to the reader. Um, I think that the book was occupied more with how to make things better in the current circumstances that we we have and how can we marry together um, economics and the reduction of risk and come up with solutions that are mutually beneficial for multiple parties yeah
2: absolutely i mean i i mean i don't really know what gender equality means. I mean, I think that's a slippery concept. I mean, I guess you study it, so you probably have a definition that's better than mine. Well, oh, I don't have a definition. Um, but for some women, this was super empowering. For others, it's exploitative. It depends really where you are in the industry, who you are, with the circumstances you're working in. It, it's it's a, it's a very, very diverse industry with a lot of people working in it in a lot of different ways. So, you know, I, I say you, you meet women who find it a major sense of empowerment, they make crazy amounts of money. Others, you know, are trafficked. I mean, it's said it's, it's really hard to judge or make any generalizations.
1: I think that's such a good follow up question. What is it that we actually mean when we use these these concepts or terms? What do we mean when we talk about a sex industry? Sex work is so broad and diverse, in fact, so broad and diverse, you wouldn't even think that you're talking about the same thing when you look at different facets of it. And One of the hilarious things about doing a PhD that I'm sure you're familiar with, Alison, um, as you have a PhD yourself, the further you dig into a concept and become an expert in it and, you know, go and descend into the deep realms of it and the philosophical questions, the more aware you become of... Um, the questions that you don't know the answers to, and you test the utility and the the limitations, the sort of boundaries of these terms that we use, such as, and that we often slap around and, and that have sort of become buzzwords, right? Like, like gender equality. So I think that that's such a good follow-up question. You know, let's go back to the drawing board, to the basics, to the sort of philosophical underpinnings. What is it we actually mean when we talk about these terms and concepts? Okay, so... Bridging with the sex work discussion and carry on, carrying on with the theme of complex equality issues, I want to ask you, Alison, why is it so difficult for agents of change and innovation to come up with effective solutions? So for example, um, going deeper on uh, gender equality, whatever that means, uh, why is there such a pronounced gender pay gap, for example? We've had an Equality and Human Rights Commission for ages and there there's a plethora of women's organizations and think tanks and policy experts working on this issue. Um, So why is it that we seem to not be achieving the objectives that we're setting?
2: Well, I think it's, a, it's a hard, again, it's like sex work, um, you know, w- women in general in the workforce. I mean, it's, they, I think why women get paid less has a million different reasons. And to some degree, it also varies from women to w- women to woman. Um, you know, like, for instance, a lot of women enter the labor force, uh, earning the same as their male peers. But over time, these, uh, you get this divergence, some because some women drop out of the labor force to have children, uh, some value flexibility a big issue for me i tend to find myself in jobs where i'm paid less than men a lot and i'll say it, i again even after my training in the brothel it's really hard for me to ask for money and to be aggressive about it and in all fairness to me when women do ask for more money they're seen less favorably than men so even if you do are if you act like a man and ask for more money it won't be responded to as well that's hard um as is it and it varies a lot by industry, it varies a lot by circumstance. Um there's this really interesting paper um by Claudia Golden and Larry Katz, he's a very famous economist at Harvard, who found even OBGYNs, you know, that is an industry where there's a lot more women doctors than male doctors and you know female patients prefer female doctors by and large. You would expect that women doctors or OBGYNs would get paid more than their male counterparts, but they're not. And they found that the difference was, was that a lot of these women OBGYNs had children themselves, so they weren't willing to get up at three in the morning and leave their children to deliver a baby. Well, their male counterparts were, so they got paid more. So, I mean, some of these things I think are quite slippery, and I'm not sure surmountable. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If you know you get paid less than a man because you want to spend more time with your children and be there for every school play, I think that's a legitimate choice. But you know you're not going to get paid as much, and that's not necessarily terrible. But then there are also, of course, there's also um, circumstances of discrimination, as I said, or it's harder for women to get more money, or they're seen as needing it less. So I, I think it's 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 a hard problem, which has a lot of very different um, sources. So that makes it hard to totally achieve it. But there's certainly more we can do. And I think raising more awareness, making employers more responsible. Say, you know, often I said I don't ask for enough money Then I found out my male counterparts are being paid more. So then when you do bring it up, employers should rectify it immediately, hopefully. So um, I think awareness is important. I think also training women to really know how to be more confident, asking for more, how to make lawyers, employers more receptive to that and not being put off when women do is a good start. So uh, I think we've come a long way. Like if you look at the data, we certainly have come a long way. And even if we have further to go.
1: And I think this circles round to the question you brought up before, what concepts and terms are we using? For example, in, in my field, which is sexual and gender-based violence studies, there are many different terms that we use interchangeably, such as domestic violence and gender-based violence and sexual violence and violence against women. And often these projects are working in siloed ways and we're using different language. So I think there's something to be said about what terms and and what vocabulary are we applying to these problems? And also what data are we capturing and valuing? So for example, if we don't take into consideration women's unpaid domestic labor in GDP terms, then we're automatically going to shut out a lot of women's work. So I'd like to move on to the question, um, how are systems stopping us achieving the outcomes that we want? Um, So what do you think are the systemic issues that are stopping systems change, if that makes sense? Well, what systems do we want to change? Well, if we think about all of the different facets of gender equality, for example, we're thinking about uh, economics, we're thinking about um, domestic violence, we're thinking about women's participation in the labor market. There are many different sort of institutional settings in which we can we can talk about uh, gender equality, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess we have to figure out what we want to change specifically uh, before we can, I guess, figure out what system is holding it back. I, you know, I think, you know, domestic violence is one thing, you know, um, you know, gender pay gaps, you know, probably driven by something different. I mean, I don't know, it's not really my area. Um, but I mean, I think before we turn, you know, tear down the system, we should also figure out, you know, can it be fixed? you know, what's working, what's not working, what's making progress, we certainly have made a lot of progress. And, um, you know, and, you know, we should honor that before thinking, okay, how do we do this? And how can we go further? And also, what exactly are our objectives, which, you know, to me, often are unclear.
1: And that leads me on to my sub question, which is about failure in social innovation and policy, which are obviously arenas where equality projects are commonly delivered. So I'm going to bring in the concept of the so-called valley of death, which is largely spoken about in reference to government and the public sector, and is a term often used to theorise why these sectors experience such high levels of failure, and also subsequently institutionally fear failure. So I saw one publication that I'd like to bring in called Crossing the Valley of Death, Bridging the Gap Between Policy Creation and Policy Delivery in Government. So this title refers to the disparities or gaps between policy and policy implementation, or policy on paper versus policy on the ground. So I'm just going to read a few lines from this article, which I think are really powerful and encapsulate the key factors that lead to these disparities and subsequently failures in our efforts to bring about change. So it reads... The vast majority of government policies are delivered through the implementation of a project or programme of some description. These projects and programmes span a wide range, from capital-intensive infrastructure and military equipment projects, through to IT projects and major transformation programmes, such as universal credit or digital courts reform. Irrespective of their diversity, they have one thing in common. If the projects are not successfully implemented, then the policy objectives are not delivered. The common causes of failure in major projects are well rehearsed. They are pretty much the same outside of government as within and across a wide range of project types. So these reasons are... Lack of clarity around project objectives, lack of alignment amongst stakeholders, unclear governance and accountability, insufficient resources, whether human or financial, inexperienced project leadership, and finally, over ambitious cost and schedule. Well designed projects address all these areas and more in the vital project init- initiation phase. Taking time at the beginning to ensure that objectives are crystal clear, stakeholders are aligned, accountabilities are well defined, and so on, saves Enormous pain and heartache later on. Good project initiation maximizes the chance of a successful outcome. Poor pro- project initiation is a harbinger of failure further down the line. So, what do you think about this? Do you have anything to say on the topic of failure? What are you, what's your view or relationship with this? I guess I want to circle back around to your contributions earlier about poorly defined objectives. So, is this the key area that causes failure?
2: Well, everything fails. In the private sector, you have a lot of failure, too. That's how you learn. That's how you grow. That's how you, um, you know, fear fear of failure, you know, as I said, is only going to hold you back. Um, But I mean, a lot of it could just as well be sort of maybe not clear sense of objectives, uh, clearly defined goals, and as I said, an ability to sort of, uh, you know, understand the systems that they're working in and how
1: to modify them. So if we approach objective setting as a key area, and if we were to envisage the process of writing up good strategic objectives as a means to engender change, what do such objectives look like? What kinds of questions should we be asking? For example, all around us, we see organisations setting objectives like by 2030 or 2040, we will have a carbon neutral city, or we will end childhood obesity, or there will be zero street harassment towards women. Is this rhetoric or can we agree they are good objectives are they i mean i don't like yeah well that's what i'm asking do you think that they are well i don't know if
2: street harassment you know i mean i I guess ending it uh i personally i've never it's never bothered me but um i I mean given all the problems in the world it doesn't seem like most pressing but um uh i mean i guess there's different levels of street harassment catcalling to me doesn't really bother me but i mean a childhood obesity, I, I guess, is definitely something done. But I mean, these, these things, what you're, you're saying to sound very hard. I mean, you want to set objectives that are realistic, maybe. That's the problem. I mean, ending childhood obesity, ending our reliance on fossil fuels. I mean, those are, those are very tough objectives and certainly ones that take more sort of beyond the scope of a lot of smaller institutions to fix. You could definitely make them better. And I think, uh, you know, small steps to the world you want are also super important. So, I mean, maybe, maybe sometimes the objectives are too ambitious.
1: Hmm, yeah, lots to think about there. I mean, on the street harassment topic, that gets me thinking about how different people will have differing experiences and beliefs concerning what affects them and is important to change or end or achieve based on lived experience and positionality. And it can also come down to, as you said earlier, how we actually define concepts like gender equality. Although I do find some concepts face face more interrogation than other concepts. And I think there are political dimensions to that. But there is a crucial environmental factor that I'd like to bring up concerning the climate of competition that we're operating in over resources. As you say, there are arguments around what is a priority, but how do we define priority? Does that mean what is existential or evidence to affect quality of life? Um, And then a counter challenge to that is that all problems sort of fit together and cannot always easily be teased out. For example, street harassment is fundamentally intertwined into all forms of violence against women and all forms of violence against women impact other areas of women's equality, such as health and labour market or democratic participation. So pinpointing what is a priority, I think, is very challenging. Um, Plus, another challenge is that equality issues can intersect many different parts of a system not just one i guess in line with the different systems that they can manifest in such as public life the economy the workplace health religion so refined and defined practical objectives much like research zone in on a narrowed area or facet of manifestation for instance my phd looks at violence against women in the education context but it's still under the overarching umbrella of gender equality or gender-based violence work but the research questions and aims are practical feasible and focus they have to be and they hold a they hold a microscope to a particular area so uh, my next question to you is how would you apply the approaches of your book to the question how can we set strategic objectives as a means to engender change Uh, so going back to the start of the podcast is there anything you would like to say about transferring the approaches of the book to a real world context
2: yeah. Well, I mean, as you say it, like I was reading an article the other day about a woman in the news in the New Yorker who got the COVID vaccine and then still got it. And I mean, she got it in the sense that she had a runny nose. And she's like, "Well, the vaccine didn't work. It didn't eliminate my risk to zero of getting COVID." It's like, "Yeah, but it you got a runny nose. I mean, is it worth ending your life over that or sort of not going outside for that?" And You know, I think that was roughly the point of the book is like you need to live with some level of risk and accept that this is going to be part of your life. But if you're good at risk management, which the vaccine is very good at, then you've made the worst thing that can happen, the risk of that go away. And that's a lot. I mean, and that's valuable. That should empower you to live with some level of risk. So if you do get a good COVID vaccine and the risk of severe illness or death or giving it to someone who's going to have severe illness or death is taken off the table, then you can feel more comfortable resuming your activities. Anyway, yes, there's a chance you might get COVID and might have a mild case of it. And we should all feel comfortable living with that level of risk. And I think that applies to anything. That was the point of the book is you should feel comfortable taking risk and understand that you're going to have some chance of loss. But hopefully if you take risk in a smart way, the worst case scenario is off the table and that should empower you to move forward.
1: So sort of digging further into uh, the pandemic context, what do you think public discourse at the moment is showing or revealing about our relationship um, with risk? And if you were uh, personally, Alison, managing, uh, you know, some of the, the policy makers um, and some of the governmental um, sort of articulation of vaccine risks, what would you do differently? What do you think they've done well? And what do you think they've, they've not done so well in regards to, um, yeah their relationship with the public and then the public's relationship with risk
2: well, I'm curious I haven't gotten much exposure to how they're doing it in the u k um in the u s it's been pretty terrible. Um, I said we're all encouraged to take the vaccine. People are very excited to take it so far, we haven't run up against people not taking it, although I'm sure we will probably in the coming weeks as it gets more available is as i said like there there is sort of all these sort of worst stereotypes of how people handle risk is that people are very focused, and for good reason, have been fixated on this one risk for the last year, that they must do everything possible to avoid getting COVID. And, you know, when, you know, it was incredibly infectious, and a lot of people were in the hospital, that was a very good way to think. But we've, I think, become completely fixated on COVID zero risk, which is this vaccine should take the risk of getting it completely off the table. And if not, it's a failure and you walk people being around like oh man there's still 5% chance i could get it and first of all it's not a 5% chance you can get it you it's a 5% chance you'd get it if exposed and even if you do get it it's going to be a mild case and at that point as i said there's you know the chance of getting a mild illness isn't enough to like socially isolate and not hug your grandmother um so i think they need to be more uh proactive in saying hey this is a really important risk mitigation tool and It's incredibly powerful, it reduces risk to the community, it reduces risk to you, but you also have to understand that there's no guarantee that you're not going to like maybe get a mild case of this and that's okay. Or maybe even the odd person will still get sick, but that the odds of that happening to you is so minuscule that it's still worth resuming your life. Because I think it is important to help people. I, I do work completely crouched in complete risk aversion, of that no risk was acceptable. We have to get people back into the world and living their lives and taking risks again, especially as so these vaccines become more prevalent. And I feel like our public health communication has not been doing that at all here. Maybe it's been better in the UK, has it?
1: Well, first of all, whilst you were speaking there, something that struck me is that there are major barriers right to us having a better relationship with risk that relate to the prevalence of misinformation and one thing that is clear from the pandemic is that Statistical literacy and other forms of medical literacy are vital to us understanding government and health communications and are crucial for us making informed choices. You know, our decisions about risk ripple out to everybody around us. But to answer your question, what I have observed in the UK government, but I'm sure this can be said about many governments globally. So if you watch the UK government uh, COVID press conferences and their decision making about lockdown measures there is this intense awareness and nervousness about risk. You can see them undertaking the calculations that you visit many times in your book, Alison, and they are trying to balance different conceptualizations of risk which comes down to how you define it and approach it there are the health risks to consider the economic risks to businesses and of course poor economic health has an impact on other forms of health there are these pipelines to risk but what is interesting in terms of policy making is that the UK government seems to face public or media scrutiny or criticism in one area. So they then rush to make promises to changing that area under those pressures, which really reveals the profound challenges of policymaking, well, in general, but especially in a, in a crisis context that affects so many different systems, you know, economy, society, mental health. So do you think, Alison, that it is possible to almost come up with an ultimate calculation of risk, taking into account all of these different areas?
2: The problem is this, is this is a big theme in the book is how do you define risk and how do you define downside risk? So for, you know, some people, the worst thing that could happen to them with COVID was getting it, affecting their grandmother, her dying. For other people, their biggest fear was losing their business. Right. So everyone has a different risk tolerance, and they also have a different way of defining what's risky to them. But the problem is with the public health crisis is you need the government sort of imposing one definition of risk and one risk tolerance on everyone. So you're not going to make everyone happy, and you're certainly not going to do it perfectly. I think what's a little different about the U.S. compared to the U.K. is that, you know, we have so many different states, and each one took their own approach you know in a, in a in, you know i'm in new york where we've been incredibly risk averse i mean if you go outside you know like 50% of our of manhattan now is vaccinated um we a lot of people have had covid but still if you're outdoors almost 90% of the people are still wearing masks and if you're not wearing masks outdoors you get publicly shamed so i mean scientifically that doesn't really make a lot of sense but we take it very seriously we um you know, we've had a fairly strict lockdown compared to other parts of the country. I'm told I haven't been, but if you go to Florida, everyone's like letting it all hang out and has the whole time. And they've actually had a better outcome than we have, although that's for a lot of reasons. So to some degree, I feel like maybe it's just healthy to have different regions that take define risk differently and handle it differently. And, you know, you can live there based on what you're comfortable with and what your risk tolerance is. Um, Because I don't think, I I don't think there is a right way and wrong way to handle this just because I said everyone has different risk tolerances. Everyone defines risk differently. And no government is going to have a one size fits all solution that's going to work for everyone.
1: I think that's such a powerful point that you made at the start. So it depends on what our priorities are. Are they economic? Are they health? And how does I'm interested also in how um, socioeconomic status would shape the um, the risk priorities that you have, for example. So, are you a business owner? What is your gender? Where do you live? Um, what's your sort of financial um, status? Mm. Okay, so the last set of questions that I would like to uh, cover before we uh, wrap up is relates to data. So my question to you is, how does data come into all of this? So how does data relate to uh, setting strategic objectives as a means of engendering change? So what are the barriers um, and enablers to capturing and monitoring data um, and and data sharing? How can we identify uh, key individuals problems in order to capture data, which will then allow us to set appropriate um, objectives? We also need to be able to uh, monitor progress over, you know, sort of longitudinal um, spans, which is obviously, uh, which is often quite difficult. Um, So yeah, is there anything that you'd like to say about capturing and monitoring data?
2: Yeah, I mean, I am an old school kind of empiricist. So um, I was definitely trained, you know, data is really, you know, how you answer these questions, how you gain insight. But more important, often than the amount of data you get and where you get it from, although that's certainly important. Is again, how do you define your research question? How well defined is it in your estimation method? How well specified is it? And I think we we certainly in the age of big data, I see a lot of people who skimp on those first two and end up getting really great data and do absolutely nothing interesting with it, um, or not really answering any question, or not answering a very well specified question. And I I think you know it, you know gr- data is certainly great and it's an amazing time to be an empiricist, but I don't think we're really training a lot of people the same way to really have well-specified questions, objectives, um, or estimation methods. Um, I see a lot of fancy estimation methods that don't really get to the heart of anything and just sort of really obscure the question. to really think through those steps. And then honestly, like data almost becomes secondary. Although I said, it's not, not nothing, but I think we're skimping too much on those first two, which is really the most important thing in any estimation exercise.
1: Absolutely, and I think that there are issues around the areas of data that we focus on. So for example, we often, zone in on measuring the extent of a problem rather than the cause and a a question from a research perspective is who are we seeing and hearing and who are we not in our data sets? So for example, as I mentioned earlier, uh, women being uh, missing from data sets because of the, li- the types of work that they're likely to, to undertake. Um, and we're not valuing certain groups in terms of GDP terms. And there's many sort of hard to reach populations such as um, such as homeless people. So is there anything that you have to say uh, about that? So what areas are we focused on and, and who, who are we um, hearing from? And then one final thing is- is um, it's all well and good capturing data, but what are we actually going to do with that data? And I guess that relates to the points that you've made throughout this podcast about setting feasible, solid, concrete objectives.
2: Yeah, and I mean, depending, your your sample population really just depends on your question. I mean, maybe sometimes it's not appropriate to have homeless people in your sample. Maybe sometimes it's only appropriate to have homeless people in your sample. So, I mean, whether or not you're missing large groups, is it really just depends on the nature of the question you're asking. And is it how you wait for it? I mean, I think one problem we've had with polling in America is that people change, Um, elections change, you have structural change. And so sort of one population or one sort of sample weight that captures not having a full population changes. And I mean, one thing, I have a chapter in the book about this, about um, estimating risk in the movie industry and why it's so hard is because you can have decent data, um, but when the world changes, your sample weights don't make sense anymore. And how do you know when the world has changed? And I think coming out of COVID, a lot of things are gonna change. And a lot of the data we had before is going to be a lot less useful.
1: That's such an important point. So data can become irrelevant or we have to ask new questions as times move on and as more factors come into or different factors come into play. So I'd like to end on two final questions. So what is doing data right to you? What does that slogan, that's the uh, data-driven innovations uh, slogan, uh, what does that mean to you doing data right? Right.
2: Um, As I said, I think it's, again, well-specified questions, a good estimation method, um, being thoughtful again of, you know, has there been a structural change that impacts the quality of your data? And I think also a lot of humility. I mean, data you know, when you work with data, you're making an estimate by definition um, and estimates are never perfect, but they are usually indicative of something. So to understand as I said, the limitations of what you're doing and uh, to understand what it is telling you, what it's not telling you, when you have causality, when you can, you can have causality. As I said, it, I think it's, it's like you were saying, when you have a PhD, you really learn what you don't know. I think when you really understand how to work with data, you understand its limitations.
1: Thanks so much. Absolutely, that's so true. Knowing what you don't know and uh, studying what isn't there is just as important as what you do know and what is there, absolutely. That's a key lesson for me from the PhD journey. Um, so my final question for you, Alison, is what about the future? What are your hopes for the future after writing uh, the book? What are your hopes for the future in terms of COVID and all of the approaches uh, that you advocate in, in the book?
2: Um. Well, I mean, I said, I guess I'm just hoping people can learn how to take risks and feel more comfortable taking risks. I'm hopeful coming out of COVID that we've all learned rather than to become more fearful of people, how to become more resilient people.
1: I love that. And what does resilience mean to you? Does that mean that we become uh, more comfortable with risk?
2: Yeah, and also more comfortable handling setbacks.
1: Mm, Okay, lots of food for thought there to leave us on. Well, thank you so much, Alison. I think we can say you have been sufficiently quizzed and I'm sure listeners will go away with, uh, as I said, so much to think about. So to wrap up, uh, I'd like to finish with recommending you get a copy of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Trust me, you will learn and laugh more than you can imagine. And consider subscribing to Alison's newsletter, Known Unknowns, How Risk Drives Our World the macroeconomy, markets and pensions via Alison's website www.alisonschrager.com and make sure you also visit the DDI Women in Data campaign to read the stories of over 60 women working with data across many fields and sectors and their views on gender equality in data science and the fourth industrial revolution plus our research report on the findings of the campaign. So please visit www.ddi.ac.uk slash women hyphen in hyphen data. So until next time, thank you so much, listeners. And thank you, Alison. Thanks for having me.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you hit review and sign up to our newsletter at ddi.ac.uk for more information on our podcast and events. Hashtag DDI Discussion. Join us in September for our annual data conference with the Scotsman on Thursday, the 30th of September. Make sure you follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Data Capital Ed and we hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening.